Hello everyone and welcome to the 38th episode of the Connectivity Podcast. I'm Mattias Fridström and I've spent the last 25 years inside the connectivity community. In this pod, we invite guests to deep dive into one or many subjects to simply learn more about connectivity. And in this 38th episode, I'm extremely happy to continue to talk to Albert Laszlo Barabasi. Going back to the network science and internet, I know and I've read that you have something called the Barabasi-Albert model. Uh, yes. What is that? Yes, uh, that's right. So this is kind of the, the the paper that I was alluding to that we published in 1999. Mm. And uh, let me just kind of go back and say what was the background in which this became interesting, right? Uh, uh, it is not true that people had not talked about networks before the 1990s, right? There was a graph theory has been dealing with graphs, and in particularly uh, both from uh, and in social systems, like there was a field from the 1940s that dealt with social networks. So mm-hmm. both of these areas fundamentally assume that networks are random. That is because we don't know how people make friends, right, or how things connect to each other. The models behind all of these fields assumed that you and I, whether you know each other or not, is decided by a dice. That is, networks really form by having a bunch of nodes, and then you randomly connect some pairs of nodes, and you get a network. This is what we call the random network model, or in the mathematical literature, it's called also the Erdős-Rényi model, based on two Hungarian mathematicians, Paul Erdős and Alfred Rényi, who in 1959 and 1960 wrote a series of papers analyzing the properties of random networks. Now, if networks are random, many properties of these random networks are predictable. So it's, I know it for many people sounds odd that something is random is predictable. For a scientist, randomness is predictable. Mm-hmm. And, and in particular, uh, one of the predictions the random network model makes is that let's assume that the society is random, then the number of links we have, the number of friends we have are very, very similar to each other. So if the society is randomly wired, then uh, we know that a typical person has about a thousand acquaintances that knows on the first name basis. This is sociologists have measured repeatedly. And if the society were to be a random network with 7 billion individuals on earth, with an average of around 1,000, then the most connected individual would have only 1,150 friends and the least connected about 850. That is, in a random network, we would be all alike. Mm. Would, no one would be very popular or famous. No one would be left behind, would be all alike. Mm. So it was this backdrop that we started to actually study networks. And our first major discovery was that real networks are not random. Uh, and we did so by analyzing the structure of the World Wide Web and a few other networks, and we discovered that instead of finding this Gaussian on the distribution of how many links you have, we actually ended up finding a power law distribution. That is telling us that in most real networks, or in real networks typically, you have a few major hubs and many, many small nodes. And that required an explanation. And the Barabashi-Albert model is the explanation of why do we have hubs. And what 
we effectively formulated in that model is that real networks don't form by having a bunch of nodes that you then connect to each other. Think about the internet, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't that you had all the major routers around the earth and then your goal was to go ahead and find an optimal network that connects them, but rather it formed one router at a time. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. So you had the first router, then you added the second one and connected to that. And the third one came and connected to one of them and so on. Mm -hmm. And that is true for all networks. So networks don't simply form by connecting existing nodes, but by grow, grow one node at a time to connect to existing nodes. That was the first law. We call it the growth law. But there was a second law that was not enough. Growth itself was not enough to explain the hubs. We also discovered that there is another mechanism that we call preferential attachment. That is, when a new node comes into the system, it does not choose randomly where to connect, but it has a slight preference towards the more connected nodes. That is, the higher your degree, the more likely I will connect to you. And then the Barabashi-Albert model is nothing but growth and preferential attachment. Nodes are added to the system, and they connect randomly to anybody they want with a slight bias towards the more connected nodes. This is not that they can only connect to the more connected nodes. It's a stochastic law, but they're biased towards the more connected nodes. And this was the simple model that for the first time was able to explain why do we see these major hubs? Why do we see this power law distribution across many, many different systems? Because then later we were showed that virtually all systems who have this property from the internet to the world wide to the cell are the result of the growth process. And we can also quantitatively detect that there is preferential attachment behind that. So the Barabashi model is not a model of the internet, is not a model of the cell, it's not a model of the social systems, but rather it is a minimal model that encompasses the fundamental law that govern all of these. But in the social system, on the internet, on the world wide web, there are lots of other things also happening, but you need growth and preferential attachment to explain the way they look like. And that became really kind of central. It's a little bit like to say, you know, when you drop, say, a feather from the, uh, from the second floor, the way it falls down is affected by the air motion, by shapes and things like that, but it falls down because of gravity. And there's no way around that, right? There is one law that kind of governs why whatever you release is going to fall down. And the same is true for networks. It's growth and preferential attachment are the primary mechanisms that shape their growth. And lots of other things are also happening that can be incorporated in the theory. So that is what we call the Barabashi-Albert model, the formulation of this minimal model that explains why the internet, why the cell, why the World Wide Web have major hubs and how many do they have and how will these grow hubs grow when the network continues to expand. All right, that's uh, interesting. Is there anything like this that can be applied to companies like us when we build out our network, you know? Uh, is there anything we can learn from this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you want to say, if you want to tell me that, hey, 10 years from now, I guesstimate that there will be I know, 20 times more routers, yeah. then this law will tell you how big the biggest router would be and what would be the ratio in the terms of degrees between the biggest and the smallest one. Because one of the big discoveries also that real networks are stationary, which means that they are grow, 
they're growing. They continue to grow. So that, when you look at it, then the, the network is continues to change, and even nodes disappear sometimes, and links disappear, and so on. But this power law distribution, that is the ratios between the bigger and the small nodes, is stationary. It is not changing. It's uh, and hence you can continue to if you have a smaller network and you want to see its future. This law will tell you how many big routers you need to plan for and how big they will be. And if you actually uh, add the spatial component, you will also be able to say roughly where these routers will be and what will be their expected size. So this has a very strong predictive power that uh, now even the internet community kind of adopted and they build these internet network generators mm -hmm. that are big growth and preferential attachment. Wow, this is um, yeah, uh, mind blowing, really, because you know we're uh, at the moment going into the sort of strategy sessions for the autumn, and, and you know the owners always ask, you know, how much money do you need next year to grow, and you have the answer <laughs> in some way. <laughs> so uh, that's uh, that's really fantastic. Uh, if you look at what what's your current projects are, are doing, you know, what is what is it that you're doing now in May 2023? What what more can be done in this field? I guess there's sure. endless so, things so that can be done. Has about two or three major directions, maybe three, right? Apart from art, right? Mm -hmm. And one of them, we spend lots of time on trying to understand the networks within ourselves. And most important, it's implications for disease. Uh, and why is that? Because we tend to think that genomics and genetics is the source of most diseases. Well, having the human genome is like giving you a phone book of Stockholm mm -hmm. without a Google map. Right. Yeah. So that or without any kind of map. So you would have the names and the addresses of every individual on the city, but you would have no way of finding where anybody lives because you are lacking a map. What network medicine does, it's an area that I help pioneer, is to develop the map of how the proteins and other molecules in the cell are connected to each other, which are the products of the genes, and how the breakdown of that network leads to disease. And most important, how do you intervene in that network to cure that disease? And this is similar, right, is that if you, for example, have uh, um, a local agglomeration of the cars in some street of Stockholm, you have the Google map to know how you're going to avoid that, right? How are you going to go around? Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens in the cell. When a gene is broken by having a mutation that makes it non-functional, right? It means that one of the links is not doing what's supposed to do. And therefore, you have to find other pathways to achieve what you're trying to do in the cell. And that's what the cell normally does. It kind of rewires itself. Not as much rewires. The links are there. But, but redirects the traffic within the cell, right? Just like you would do in Stockholm, going around a, a problem area. And But for to understand how the cell does it and how do you kind of help the cell to solve a problem like that, that is what drugs would actually achieve in that case, you need to have the network. And this is an area that I started working on in 2015 when I first came back to Boston and started working at Harvard. Now we have a network medicine institute at Harvard. We have an international society of network medicine that the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm is part of. And, uh, and we have also products on the market, like, for example, RA patients, that rheumatitis arthritis patients, uh, today use a network-based tools 
to tell their doctors what drug will actually work for them uh, because the network-based tools can detect where the problems are in their cell when they have the disease and hence which of the drugs is hitting in the right neighborhood to, partition, uh, to cure that. So it really kind of saves lots of money to patients and leads to faster cures. You don't have to just try and wait six months to see if it works. Mm-hmm. So that's one area. We're yep. trying, to, trying to understand how really the the networks affect health and how do we cure it. A related area, very embedded in that, of how the food molecules, the molecules we eat perturb the network, and mm-hmm. kind of we call it food as medicine. But another big area in my lab that is wacky both here in Boston as well as in my <laughs> Budapest collaborations uh, is really focused on uh, uh, on what we call physical network, which is much closer to where, where you are, right? Mm-hmm. Because much of the network science in the last decade has developed with the concept of virtual network, where the link is like a link between two web pages, which they don't have a physical existence, the link itself. So just because you and I know each other, it doesn't mean that we're constantly are holding hands or we're constantly on the Zoom with each other, right? Physical networks are those where the link is semi-permanent or totally permanent, like the brain, where mm-hmm. actually the neurons are permanently linked together, and uh, or like uh, the 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 blood and the vascular vascular system in your body, or like the wiring of a computer chip, or the wiring of the internet, or the wiring of a big computer farm, right, where the links are actually physical, and they can get entangled. And they cannot really cross each other. You need to cut the link to really kind of cross each other. And so one of the things we try to understand, motivated mainly by brain, where we actually start having lots of detailed physical networks, actual brain maps, but also by other systems, is how does the presence of physicality changes the behavior of a network and how to account for that and so on. So that's kind of another big area within the lab. And the third area still focuses on uh, on science of science and science of art. That is, how do we use big data and network tools to understand, uh, you know, how art and science develop and what the career of individuals, whether you are an artist or scientist. Wow, really, really cool. <laughs> uh, one thing I'm, I'm kind of curious about is your, is your own relationship to the internet, because you know so much about networks and internet, and, and can you really like think about the internet without thinking about how it's connected and how it's developed and <laughs> who's talking to who and so on? Uh, so let yeah. me tell you a personal story on that. So so I got my master's degree in Budapest, and I was there between 1989 and 1991. And that was the time when Eastern Europe was on on the COCOM list, if you remember Mm -hmm. that, right? Which means that they could not get access to internet or the infrastructure that kind of led to the internet. It was a bit net at that time, right? Because it was still run by the National Science Foundation in the US, the world infrastructure. And the way we had internet there as researchers is that Every day, the server will dial into a Vienna phone, through the phone, into a Vienna computer, and would download all the emails that we were getting. But we had one single email address, which was the faculty who set it up, his email address. And everybody was asked to put in the subject and your, na- the, your name so you know who the email goes to. And then they built a server locally in the university that it would redistribute the messages 
to everybody based on what the subject said. And if 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 the sender forgot to put, put your name on the subject, then the system manager would send an angry email around to everybody whose email is this and tell your colleague to put your name on the, <laughs> on the subject. So I'm familiar with the internet back then, right? Mm -hmm. Where we actually ended up wiring a cable or one of my colleagues ended up physically wiring a cable along the bridge in the Danube to get from one institution to the other one to give them access also yeah. <laughs> to this, right? And they actually physically walk the cable through and put it totally illegally on the bridge because you're not allowed to put uh, bridge, uh, cables on the bridge, but no one noticed and that was up for several years and that was <laughs> access to the internet. Yeah. Um, so when I came to the U.S., uh, I was one of the very early users, right? Uh, that was way before World Wide Web. Uh, well, kind of around the time the World Wide Web was emerging, actually. That was 1991, right? And uh, when I started to work at IBM, we were among the first one to get to dial-up connections from home. Uh, because IBM was trying to reduce the number of people who come to the office, and uh, and they started to actually give us these devices, that modems, right, which was unheard of at that time, but we as IBM employees had that. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, I have a very early start, but most important, uh, I was working on networks from 1994 to 1999 unsuccessfully, mm -hmm. and my breakthrough came from studying the World Wide Web and the Internet. And the internet really made possible network science, not only as a subject of study, that we studied the internet as an example of a network, but the internet allowed people to collect massive databases and share with each other that could be reinterpreted as networks. So I totally credit the, the emergence of the internet as kind of a father or mother of network science, because through the internet, the data sets emerged through which we can, for the first time, explore real networks. And then once we started seeing the patterns, then we're able to kind of collect many other data sets that kind of reinforced our findings. All right. But can you use the internet today without thinking of oh, shit, why is this connected to this? And, and why is this connection oh, not faster? None of us <laughs> thinks that. I mean, who knows where your internet is coming from, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anybody has any clue except you guys, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and that's the beauty of it, right? Yeah. It became an invisible infrastructure like water, right? And the water is even more visible, right? Because you know exactly where the pipe is and how it comes. And if you cut it, you'd see flowing in the, on the ground. Uh, the internet is even more subtle, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, so it is amazing as a resource. Uh, and it is really true which the Earth became a single organism, right? And the internet has played a huge role. Uh, I mean, the unique role, right? In the sense that we turned uh, kind of, we became from, from many disconnected communities and societies into one big village. Yeah. Do you think this internet model of today, you know, when no one really owns the network and people own the sort of uh, anyone can add anything to the internet and everything is connected to everything. Do you think that model will continue throughout the years? I don't or? think I don't think we have a choice around that. I think unless there is so so I the way I look at it, the internet is stuck into the nineteen sixties infrastructure, right? Because mm -hmm. the protocols were built then. And then you lock in the system, right? And it's very hard to get around that, like the QRT keyboard, right? Uh, that was originally developed to slow us down from typing because the mechanical ty uh, uh, the typewriters could not take too fast typing. So it was developed to, to type slower 
And then it became the standard, and even I'm using it today when that is not a goal any longer. That same happened with the internet. We developed this infrastructure and the system that was based on the ideas and the, the technologies of the 1960s. And we cannot afford at that, this moment, or no one could afford to really fundamentally redesign it. Uh, we patched it up a lot. And this is not to say there were no major advances, right? Uh, both technologically and algorithmically and everything, right? But I think if somebody would tell you to design with the current knowledge and infrastructure from stretch, you would design a very different internet than we have today with many more capabilities. But we're stuck with it. And I suspect that we'll stay with this yeah. until a quantum internet really emerges as an alternative that would allow us to use a different architecture, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but in a way, if you look at the sequence of things, we had first telegraph, that on top of which we built the phone system, right? Yep. On top of which we ended up building the cable systems and the internet, right? So so and until and the only break from that was the wireless technologies, right? That has some broke away from that that uh, thing, and the next big thing that hopefully will happen is quantum communication that may have a chance to kind of entertain a very different art architecture. Until then, we're going to continue writing this 1960s set of ideas uh, to 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 uh, to use the internet. <laughs> oh, that's really cool! Uh, one of the reasons I started this podcast was I felt you know some people don't really realize how important connectivity is. I guess you you just said that your whole science field comes from the connectivity part of internet. You know, do you feel that people in your environment understand the importance of connectivity, or or people just taking it grant granted? Or I think we take it from getting like how much do you think about the importance of water and where water comes from, right? You just let the water flow, right? And even though it's a very important resource and we should be thinking about it, like it's going to continue to be available and and so on. But I think internet did become like water, right? Yeah. Yeah. It is kind of available. You pay for it and you have access to it. And, uh, and we don't tend to think about it except when it goes wrong. Okay. Oh, but that's really that's good. We're coming towards the end of this. I, I could continue this forever because I'd love the, <laughs> the field and everything. But just just a final question. If you and I would have this discussion in five years, you know, what would we talk about, you know? Well, that's interesting. Uh, maybe we'll talk about quantum computing, right? And yeah. quantum internet. Perhaps not yet as a daily way of life, but but I'm hoping that by then you would be busily building it, right? Uh, and uh, and I think we will be talking about what AI has done actually to kind of change the way we use the internet and the big demand on the infrastructure that AI has imposed in the last five years or will impose in the next, next five years on the internet infrastructure, right? Because yeah. you have an energy and power and bandwidth hungry infrastructure uh, technology that now became our daily habit, right? I use ChatGPT and other AI tools on a daily basis. And I'm deeply aware of the computational resources that every single question that I pose require. Uh, so I think, but I also think that this will not change mm. your infrastructure. You're just going to beef it up yep. <laughs> to make it, <laughs> make it stronger and give it more bandwidth to support that. So it will be a transformative for our life, but will not fundamentally alter the infrastructure. But five years from now, 
we will probably talk about we could probably talk about how much beef dump infrastructure you had to build yeah. uh, and how it changed our way of life actually and again you don't have ai without the internet right no, no. Uh, no you're right and and so so we'll continue that conversation that, yeah. on that all right oh that's great so uh, yeah i think that's kind of it's the end of this so last little Two super thanks for being here, you know, super interesting and, and thanks a lot for being on my podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening. We will soon be back with a new guest, so please follow us on Twitter, ConnectivityPod, for updates. Stay tuned until next time. <laughs>